Well, let's begin. My name is Mel Cantwell. It's my great pleasure to host this long table today, Vanguards of Exploration. Who are we and where are we going? It's also my pleasure to acknowledge we are meeting on the lands of the Wadjuk people of the Noongar Nation and to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to First Nations artists in the room. Thank you for your continuing guidance and wisdom. I'm joined here at the table by Jo Louis, Rachel Deese, James O'Hara and Zohar Spatz. Glenn from Fremantle Arts Centre isn't able to join us, which is a shame, but um, it's a democracy, as you'll see from the etiquette. So anyone can join us at the table. You don't have to use the microphone, but you're welcome to if, um, if you prefer. To participate, simply take an empty seat. If you leave the table, you can come back again and again. There can be silence and there might be awkwardness. I'm here. Oh, good. <laughs> Joe's bringing the awkwardness. I promise already. Um, so, I mean, what an amazing week we've had. What an amazing two weeks, I guess, as we think about who are we and where are we going. Some of the conversations that we've been having at the Hub have made it pretty clear that we want sustainable practices, we want equality and collaboration and process, we want ethical funding, and we want safe and accessible spaces. And I think that is kind of, they're the main things that I've been picking up. So I think I'd love to dig into that a little further. And so how about, you know, picking up on your conversation this morning, um, about that beautiful notion of artistic risk and experimentation and so um, maybe see if we can unpack that a little further too. So who, who would like to kick us off? Joe? who are we at the moment? <laughs> Any ideas? Who are we? As yeah. We... As a community, as a sector, as West Australian makers. I think we are a community. Would you like this? Sure. If, oh shit, if I had to, I don't know, it's hard, right, because that, that's a broad question, yeah. but I think in general we are a community that wants very much to be seen and acknowledged, like, on a, on a national level. Yeah. We feel very much the isolation and the distance, and there is certainly a, a push to kind of have some kind of mark beyond yeah, I think uh, actually speaking of exploration, I feel us to actually be a community that is probably far far more open to um, exploration and difference than maybe we uh, might first think of ourselves or realize. Um, actually, a lot of stuff here is quite weird, uh, you know, and I think it, yeah. Rachel, what do you think we are? Yeah, I think we've we sort of on a broader level feel like we need to um try and keep up with what's happening on 
the East Coast and we're constantly being forgotten about and looked over when it comes to funding and programming and a whole bunch of things. But I think we're really, we've wasted generations and generations of energy doing that yeah. because I don't necessarily think that that's the gold standard. Um, and I think we should have been looking international, looking out internationally. Um, and I just feel like we've wasted a lot of time and energy and um, esteem. Yeah. Feeling like it's, I sort of feel like it's okay to feel second best to something that perhaps is better, but when you feel second best to something that maybe isn't, that's just kind of a waste of energy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I just feel like like looking over that, but when it, when it comes to national funding, federal funding, and where international programmers go to look for Australian work, they don't go here. Yeah. So I think that's where a lot of the energy should be going out and not necessarily east. Yes. Yeah. Just while we're having a pause, I did forget to say that this conversation is being recorded, um, audio and video for Performing Lines. So if anyone has an issue with that, to have a chat with Jen. Look forward to that, going to the East Coast. For yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> no, it's a really good point. And in terms of actionable stuff that we were discussing this morning, you know, actually making a push for programmers to come and see the work, how we do that and with whom. Jess, don't know. <laughs> I mean, obviously that's been really difficult the last... <laughs> Few years. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as someone who's just kind of come back to this place, I've actually heard that conversation quite a bit about, you know, hey, what about us kind of thing. And I, I having come back here just recently, I'm noticing how incredibly unique and how incredibly um, creative this space is and how many distinct individual voices there are that are really like nowhere else. And I think that is, yeah, I think you're totally right in terms of energy you can now forget about that and go, mm -hmm. what, you know, what is here? Yeah, because I think those voices, celebrate those voices get really diluted when they try and go east to prove like that's, if we get accepted over there, you know, but then I often find that when people move or leave, they just kind of get bogged down in a different world and a lot of that creativity and uniqueness is lost. Yeah. Yeah. Even just in this room, you know, so many unique voices, so many individual practices, so many possibilities, people running festivals, people making dance works, people kind of creating new spaces. It's it's incredibly exciting, actually. How about you, Zoha? Have you spent much time here? Is this your, your this first This visit? is not my first visit. I, um, I've never lived in WA. Um, I've generally come for three to four days at a time, and I've been coming here probably for the last decade or so. Um, and it's interesting, that thread of conversation. So I'm originally from Melbourne and I moved to Brisbane 10 years ago. And it was the same conversation when I arrived in Brisbane, which was um, what about like the validity of the art sector in Brisbane comparative to Sydney or in particular Melbourne. And I guess my provocation back is, well, firstly, the East Coast doesn't think about WA in that way at all, actually. 
there's no diminished or less than. I don't, I don't see that. So the provocation that I'd love to explore is what does it look like if we re-establish what success looks like, like if we revalue, if we were to remove that need to get validation or success in that space and we re-established as a sector here what it looks like to thrive mm. without that sense of parochial location and lent into the uniqueness of place-based and this incredible state and this really vibrant and vital sector. Yes. Does yeah, I don't think the I don't think the sort of artistic capitals have placed that on other cities. I think it's very much coming from yeah within, mm. and all it takes is a few knocks to kind of really solidify that. Mm -hmm. A few funding rounds where sure. like Queensland and South Australia and WA don't get a look in, and it's yeah. kind of solidified. So it's kind of a, a thought that you just make up because you feel less than, and then it. You know, I don't feel like there's people over there kind of yeah. bagging out um, national art. I just, uh, yeah, feel like, I feel like if we took away some of the funding issues, that would make a, a big difference. And part of that is just being able to get people to see work from over yeah. here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just being on a panel a funding panel or an awards panel and just not having any contact with absolutely with people then the context makes a massive difference so absolutely representation counts like yeah. you need to feel like that across the board there's representation that understands the work and the context in which you're operating in mm. and i think that's a real thing earlier this morning we talked a bit about like getting people onto the peer like within the context i work at australia council at the moment for context. um but i'm fresh i'm three i'm three months in so i'm <laughs> i was saying to kbt before i'm in a place of optimism um <laughs> and um and i i hope to continue to be but you know my experience having been a peer assessor prior to joining australia council when i was working in regional queensland was that exposure and being able to talk to work that, yeah. yes, in a context, the New South Wales, the Victorian, they just don't have any um, yeah. reference points. Mm. And I think we're learning best practices also, like if you don't have a lived experience, you shouldn't be at the table representing that strategy, that project, that work. So in particular, I'm thinking about regional and remote or um, people who, you know, work in complex social environments. If, if you don't have someone with that lived experience, how can they possibly talk to that work? And that means that there's an onus on you guys to step up into that leadership space, but also that it's a two-way. Yeah. So we need to change some things as well. I wonder if we, um, I was a guest peer on the theatre board for a little while and I was kind of quite shocked at actually how few West Australians were putting in for Australia Council funding. And I think there's a multitude of reasons for that. Um, like, you know, a series of rejections and so on, and not having as much access to those processes and learning. But, um, you know, maybe it's time that we all just step up and kind of keep coming back and asking and putting our, faith, our kind of work in front of those um, boards until we reach some sort of critical mass of yeah. presence, you know? 
Yeah, I think also it's just reframing the lens in which we see ourselves as a sector as well. Um, and I, I understand why that headspace is there about not being visible and not being seen and not being competitive, comparative. But often, like part of the reason why I wanted to step into the role that I was in was that given COVID, on a really personal note, given COVID and I was previously running a theatre company, I'd never worked in a single art form before and I just felt exhausted by the narrowness. It was like this hectic localised view and I was like, I need a national view. Like I wanted to just punch out of this narrowness that I'd operated from. And that's been really remarkable and that meant that I had to change some pretty heavy shit in my life to do that. But I think there's also an onus for us to also be the change that we need to be to go on an exploration of other. No one's, you know. Yes. Yeah. It does give you a freedom though, like over here, <clears throat> to be like a, a kind of incubate, incubator and um, to just kind of think, oh well, fuck them, like I can, do what I want and I can try different things and I can, you know, I don't, you know, you f there's such a supportive industry yeah. Um, and you feel like it's small enough that you can make mistakes and you can, mm. like, there aren't all these eyes on you constantly um, possibly changing career paths or, you know, whatever that is or you can just kind of play more. And I think the idea of play happens here a lot. Um, um, in my experience, a little bit, you know, more than it happens in other places. Um, and the idea of like failure, whatever that means. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe it's because it's this is my home city, so I feel like I feel comfortable and I can play. And if something doesn't work, I that's okay because I feel like I'm in your family kind of a zone, whereas um, I feel like that's less so in in other places where where failure can be seen as a um, a possible loss for a career or seen as a slight or seen as yeah. So. We get to see each other's kind of bodies of work over a period of time, don't we? Yeah. Which I think is part of that too. Mm. It's interesting though, I think to talk about a space where we're allowed to play and fail, <clears throat> like I think we have had those opportunities, but I very much feel that at the moment, there is a, a risk of a shrinking, and I, I do often find myself wondering like how much people that want to kind of like fuck around and find out can actually do that now. We're in a space of like, I feel like we're in a space where because of COVID, we're dealing with the repercussions and things are shrinking a little bit. And I wonder, I think when I was invited to be in this thing, there was this thing where how can I, as a person, that has practiced for this length of time still in any way be considered to be at the front of exploring anything. Because realistically, the people that are doing that are all perhaps people we maybe haven't heard of 
doing weird stuff that we don't even really know about. And I wonder, because I do agree that a benefit of being in a place like this is that we should have those incubatory spaces and we should have those kinds of opportunities to be super weird. And I wonder whether it still does exist in, in that major way for, for people like that are just graduating, for people who you know, don't have um, the kinds of names to create, to generate that space for themselves within this place. I don't, yeah, I'm not saying that as like a, I know the answer, but it, it is something that I feel like, I think it is true that it's super good here to be exploratory and experimental, but I worry uh, about how to sustain or how to expand those spots so that people who want to try something that is not easily, I don't know, fundable can, mm. can go and do. Because I think inherently we're talking about exploration, we're talking about stuff that is less easily funded, right? Like, well, yeah. it can't be funded. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. the word vanguard comes from like revolutionary circumstances. Mm -hmm. No one's funding that, mm. you know. And, and, and I think though, Joe, personally, I think you can be part of the vanguard and have a long practice. Sure. I think for me, and it'd be great to hear what people think about what a vanguard might mean, but to be pushing up against traditions or um, uh, established practices or whatever, and to be and to be pushing the boundaries of who who can be part of work and um, and what it means to them, that for me is a maybe a, a quality of a vanguard. But I don't think you know. Yeah, it's it's rarely is it something that an institution or or a massive institution like a nation would mm -hmm. champion until it's become established and potentially dead. Like, mm -hmm. yeah. This is this is really great talk. Uh, that uh, because just because the you know the little blurb that we had coming into this was about failure in science, and there's this really great talk that Neil deGrasse Tyson once gave on why governments should fund space exploration, and he kind of talks about how it's the organization's job to fund things that are currently not commercially viable because you don't know about all the kind of commercially viable stuff that comes in its wake, like first going to the moon was not really useful for anything, but out of that comes all the myriad kind of medical advancements and all this other kind of stuff that is kind of worth talking about. And I always thought about that in relationship to art and the stuff that kind of comes out of, like there's so much that we see I was recently super obsessed with everything everywhere all at once. And that movie has so much stuff in it that 20 years ago would have been on the cutting edge of weird, yeah. right? And and if all those things didn't kind of have that space and that time, we wouldn't now be able to get the multi hundreds of million dollars hit that is the commercially successful everything everywhere all at once. I think there is something about I don't know, organizations like making space to maybe have a look in at things that are fundamentally seemingly unfundable or, yeah, I, I don't know. But that's, that's part of the issue, the, the, the government should be funding things that aren't commercially viable. Yeah. But 
we don't have enough of an audience to even get people to a commercially viable Correct. performance. Yeah. So that money is being spent, you know, instead of being able to have a sustainable commercial practice at theatre org or whatever, you program a whole bunch of different ideas to bring in money, that's not happening. So mm. the audience isn't big enough or the models aren't sustainable um so all of so the money that should be possibly spent on exploratory ideas which yeah. the government kind of should be the ones funding yeah um all philanthropic philanthropic organizations funding that's that's just going towards just keeping things breathing yeah yeah i want to see some funding of exploratory models too you know that aren't the kinds of we're, we're so stuck in this form of like you know, first you have to have the board and then you kind of sort of this, like fund, go where the energy is, you know, fund the groups that are making work, fund the people that are kind of building things and see what happens. The model doesn't have to, in my mind, be this sort of, we all want to be a small to medium or we all want to be a major or, you know, what about artist run spaces? What about- What about no boards? What about no boards? You know, but you know, like, that's where I see a really kind of exciting moment for us potentially with national cultural policy and as a community being so beautifully brought together by performing lines. You know, we do have a voice. Can we kind of, can we find ways to push for more exploratory models of companies and collaborations and, you know? Can I ask a sideways question of the table? Just because I always get really terrified of these things always becoming about like funding. So yeah. I really wanted to know, because this panel is so full of artists from such a lovely and broad spectrum of the performing arts, what is new in your form that really excites you now? And what is a potentially exciting thing in your form, however you see that as, that maybe you haven't quite seen yet, but you think is really cool? Oh. Yes. <laughs> Van we're Vanguard. <laughs> Rachel, it's on the it's on the list. We are all Vanguards. <laughs> um, just to, because I'm I'm not here to talk about my art practice, but in my role, firstly, just to say that. My title is Community and Experimental. So the Australia yeah, Council, right. as flawed and as broken as the ecosystem might be, does value the funding and the support and and of the experiment. That that there's value in the experiment. And I hate that word value too, but like the alchemy of what happens when you just try something different. So that is there and that should be lent into. And the more that artists use that as a leverage and a tool, I think the stronger we see visibility in that space. And on a personal level, I'm really, really fucking excited about artists that are starting to explore within an experimental space, how they connect to country. So a lot of First Nations artists, there's this really remarkable sonic artist called Leah Barclay, who's working with a traditional custodian on the Sunshine Coast, Linden. And they're looking at um, environmental sonic bird calls and how that then translates into visual arts and his art practice. And it's remarkable. 
and it's just re-centering re power of First Nations stories and place and connecting to country. So that's my contribution. Yeah. I got really excited by Gallup, the VR experience of Gallup, and I know that VR is not like has been around for a while, but it was my first experience of it. Yeah. And I loved just the, the sort of portability of this incredible experience. I was like, it has to be like in New York and it has to be in, you know, like just this beautifully hyper local delicate work that can just go anywhere and, um, and kind of bring people into your space. I just, I found it thrilling actually. I joined the table principally just to say that um, I feel like the perimeter of this space is really exciting. And uh, to raise a question, can we broaden the conversation beyond the table? Or yeah. make absolutely, yeah, absolutely. That's like, what these chairs are because, for. Yeah, yeah. I Anyone feel like people should, um, and I'll vacate. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to go, sir. I'll speak from back here, though. You know. <laughs> Hi, Bernie. Welcome. Hi. Hi. I, thanks for the question. I think it's a great question. Um, I only joined the table because it made me want to be able to answer that. If if you were only asking these people who are here for a very particular reason, how could I answer that in my field, which is dance? And immediately I was like, fuck, I don't know. I have no idea because I've never thought about it. Um, and But something that does come to mind is not so much what the work what work is being made because I think one of the things I love about Perth dance is that it is diverse um, um, but it's actually that there's some awesome people make insisting and persisting with making at their particular pace so that there's like there's this new wave of slow art and beautiful incredible work that's being made in that like Emma Fishwick is you know the first person that comes to mind not the only one um, and that she is like reframe she's like right I'm just going to slow the whole system down because I need it to Rachel Ogle is doing a lot of that like not nah, this is the pace that I work at and then I see on the flip side someone like Tyrone Robinson who can do the opposite he's just like producing like a machine he doesn't need three developments he needs one and then he needs presentation but he's not getting that phase and so but is still insisting and persisting that that's the pace at which he makes the best work he can make so there's I think there's something for me that's exciting and interesting that that sets a standard for we can have these two different ends of the spectrum and then therefore the rest of us can continue to demand a pace that we need and hopefully that we can then challenge the funding models and the boards to go no you can't just give us two dates a year to apply you, you have to can we can we um, can we can we demand by the way that we need to work and the many different ways that we need to work different systems so that yeah. there's yeah. Uh, it's a more multifaceted approach instead of a singular approach then trusting the artists that they know, especially an artist at a certain point of their career, that they know how much time they need. Because I think forced development time can be quite a negative experience mm. as well. Like, oh, they've only had two. They need four. Mm. Or if it, some things go backwards, you know, yes. like, um, or fizzle out. So I just think trusting that there isn't a, a set amount of time that everyone needs to produce a work of a certain standard. Um, or they need, they don't need, not necessarily standard, but um, 
they don't need that time to process mm. what they're doing. Some people need longer and <coughs> And that making work isn't a silo. Like you don't just get the work right and that's it done and you were awesome and now I do another one. But it like that making work is a continuation and it's a constant process and you build and you build bodies of work and you learn from that body of work, that thread from one thing to the next. And so maybe there's something about helping create like supporting maybe this is about you <laughs> um like the longevity of an artist somehow we talk about sustainability but maybe we it's also longevity as a word to talk about yes um can i go yes yeah. <laughs> um Something that I got to be part of and, and help create that was really awesome was a super, super inclusive opera. Um, from woe to go, it was very accessible and inclusive. Um, it was Yolanta, and it was really good because people from the blind community were brought in to take apart the script, to take apart the concepts and decide how we wanted to have Yolanta portrayed. Um, and the um, Yolanta was actually portrayed by a um, blind person who actually ended up being me, which was very cool. Um, and they put in some spoken monologues to actually bring her voice to the piece. And um, it was very accessible. The set was built so that a blind person would actually really have an advantage moving around because a lot of the moving around was done in semi-darkness. Um, it was multi-sensory. There was a, a tactile tour where every costume, um, there was made a duplicate of the costume and it was put on a mannequin so that people who were blind could go up and feel and touch and um, get up close with those mannequins. And then they were left on stage and uh, everybody got to look at the mannequins and people were like, why is this? And then, you know, when the uh, things got really quite dark, they realized that, look, they weren't really going to see most of the costumes very well. <laughs> so uh, that was their opportunity to have a look at them. Um, <laughs> Built-in audio description, just really, it was a very experimental thing. Um, it was very accessible to the public because it was all in English. Um, and uh, so that everybody could, could hear and understand most of it. <laughs> and. Um, and anyone could be involved and uh, go to an opera and find some accessibility features for themselves. Amazing. Who, who did Who did? This? It was West Australian Opera. Oh, great. And also, I think, just produced the first Noongar Opera. Yes, yes they Gina, did. Gina's Opera was the first. <laughs> first. It's nice to see a kind of big institution like that making those steps. Sounds great, great. Yeah, no, it's really neat that, that we're doing the experiments and trying more in inclusive things um, for theatre and trying to get um, different diverse people up on stage to represent. Yeah. 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 You're a bit of a vanguard, Justin, in my opinion. <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad to see you at the table, actually. <laughs> I think I kind of missed the moment for when I, what I was going to talk about, but it was sort of in response to Joe's question uh, or provocation, having like, I've been organising concerts for in the experimental music scene for nine years and a festival for six years, 
Um, and the community that I'm part of has instigated its own platforms for presenting its work in the absence of any institutional platform at all, because there isn't one anymore for experimental music in Western Australia. Um, there's no funded organisations that consistently support um, local practice in that space. Um, I guess just what I wanted to say was that the work that comes out of, like I go to these concerts all the time, right? Like I'm out every week just seeing whatever's on and there's just amazing stuff all the time. Um, and uh, um, I sort of see this, I have this constant dissonance between um, uh, constantly going to these concerts and witnessing like really <clears throat> amazing work from people who are kind of indifferent to the, all of the structures that we're talking about. I mean, they're mostly just in their room practicing, working on stuff because they really care about it and they share it within this community context that they really care about. And um, it doesn't really matter to them where it, whether it goes beyond that. If someone books them for a paid gig, they're like, great, cool, but they're not really actively out there seeking those opportunities. Um, and most of them have full-time jobs doing something else or part-time jobs doing something else. Um, yeah, and I suppose I have felt uh, in also thinking about institutions because I feel like when we're going back to the like, are we just copying Melbourne or whatever, I feel like a lot of um, not just institutions but also like structures or of, of how the discourse about the arts in WA is, is structured, are, um, they're kind of, uh, I don't know if this sounds ridiculous, but it's almost like desperately trying to legitimise the arts in WA or something. like. Mm. Um, so it's sort of like, uh, I'm going to pick on Seesaw, which is not fair because they do really great things, but like, um, it's really rare to see Seesaw review a show that you wouldn't expect Seesaw to review, I find. Like, you know, they're never going to go to Outcome Unknown and review just a, a gig at a yacht club, even if the, regardless of the, whether the, it's quality, uh, well, yeah, just to say that there's nothing to say that that community context has less quality than something that has a budget behind it or whatever, um, is what I'm trying to say. So I, I feel like there's maybe an absence of that um, looking actually to the grassroots and seeing what's growing out of the soil and um, attending to that at the place where it comes out of. And the same from the institutional perspective as well, saying, well, if we kind of are just pretending that we want to be like Melbourne or all of our models are informed from Melbourne or internationally or whatever, um, I feel like the kind of art that is coming out of the soil, kind of like what you're implying, Joe, that we, we wouldn't, or I think someone mentioned, we wouldn't know what it looks like because it, it's so emergent, <laughs> so radical or so contingent that we don't have a frame to put around it yet. Um, I think there's a lack of uh, risk and rigour in a lot of arts institutions to actually like bother looking for that stuff and, and, uh, and, um, and supporting it. So I think, yeah, I mean, I, basically from going to those gigs for 10 years and seeing like truckloads of mind-blowing music and doing my best to platform it, I, I just get very consistently disappointed that I never see anyone from these institutions ever go. And I often don't see um, other artists from other art spaces go, even though many of these spaces are interdisciplinary spaces. So it's sort of like that's your lifeblood, right? Mm. Like, why, why neglect it? Anyway, that's, that's my big provocation. <laughs> Mostly tiredness. Yes, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> but uh, for me, it's a wellspring of energy, right? I know, it is, yeah, totally. I'm yeah. just going to jump in there, though, and say, for me personally, it's because 
because of work commitments as yeah. well. Because it's hard to not, like, because I don't fit into the nine to five model of work, then when all these things are occurring, I'm usually working my other job or I'm doing <coughs> other things. So it's not the lack of desire to get there. Actually to make yeah, yeah. Oh, look, I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not trying to personally attack anyone in, in no, the room. No. I, I'm, I'm more just. I absolutely understand that there are there are barriers to to attending things. Um, I'm more talking about the institutional structures. Why don't I see curators go there? You know, why, how do you call yourself a curator if you don't go and see shows in the community? Right. That's a really bizarre. Anyway, sorry, I don't, I'm not trying to like agitate. What? So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to, um, I, uh, I'm not trying, what, what's the word? Anyway. There's you know also I mean. a freedom to being, um, you know, having a full-time job or a sustainable job outside of the arts or sort of on the edge of the arts and still doing your practice mm. and still doing that thing that like drives mm. you and, and um, you can play with it and you don't feel this pressure to present or to fill a certain role mm. so there is that is honestly where some of the best newest work is coming from because it isn't informed by um the economic pressures or the yeah the, i think yeah i think so yeah even on a um a, a cultural level i think there's a really interesting necessary friction between institution and non um in new zealand where i was just living um there was quite a big debate around the dance institutions and their kind of what they were uh, establishing and then this kind of revolt against them. But that revolt was only possible because they'd gone through that institution. So the, there was this group of um, young artists who were trying to kind of rebel and um, create a sort of training space or a, a collective community space that was kind of deeply tied in Indigenous values as well, which is really beautiful to kind of um, try a different model of, of, of gathering and forming and sharing of ideas that wasn't a part of the three major dance training institutions in New Zealand. But there was, there was a lot of anger and kind of um, aggression around what the institutions were doing, but that kind of was born out of the fact that they had all actually come out of that institution. So the, I find that, that kind of, um, I don't know, that relationship we have to institutions really interesting because they, they're essential and necessary for us to kind of agitate against or, or kind of find other pathways or fresh ways or, or kind of um, challenge and support other ways of doing things. But they're kind of there as a, also as a kind of pillar to kind of move around and against. Yeah. It kind of makes me want to ask you, Zohar, about mm. your time at Le Boites. Mm. And the kind of, that's quite a radical change of model that you introduced there, right? Yeah, that was, um, so <clears throat> I, uh, at the end of COVID, at the start of COVID, oh my God, what time is it? <laughs> um, so La Boite is Australia's longest running traditional theatre company. So yeah, it turns 100 in about two or three years time. Um, uh, it was like a repertory trad theatre company. <laughs> um, and um, my practice is very community led <laughs> uh, and um, I hate hierarchy. Um, I have since I was a small person. Um, but anyway, so taking on a role within a theatre company and a complex kind of trad theatre company, um, COVID hit and we applied um, and we decided 
to establish and we applied to rise to establish an artist company because basically from my perspective this idea was that the entire local sector was suffering and we needed to find a way to to try and create a bridge to support artists um, so we applied and were successful for a million dollar grant through rise and we hired 22 artists um, actors lighting designer costume like the whole, everything that you required to make a theatre show, including a dramaturg. We hired three directors in residence. It was an opportunity to explore what shared leadership models look like. Um, fundamentally, it came from a heart space of, we need to just also employ people and give them some sort of support mechanism. But it was like a moment to just reset and, and try something different because for me it was like, well, if not now, we're never going to be able to do it. Um, and we leapt in and it was a really interesting period of time that um, Artist Company has now kind of come to an end. We've got the last show for Brisbane Festival this year will be the last work that those artists have been engaged in. Um, and on some level there was success to it, but there was also for me like a huge learning curve in failure, which was I tried to bust a system that was unbustable. <laughs> like, you know, like trying to introduce a shared model. I was, I was really clear at the start that this was not some sort of um, new collective that we would somehow manage to change the way that we worked. Um, but that there was an opportunity for everyone to come together and collaborate and try new things. And it's really interesting when you give people, I don't know, like for me on a reflection, like we talk about agency and equity a lot and within the rehearsal space and often within the development phase, everyone has a voice and it's really collaborative and you kind of break away some of those traditional barriers and roles and responsibilities. And then you do step into a performance environment and all of a sudden an actor is just an actor. Or all of a sudden the stage manager is just calling the show or the director is not there any longer. Like you kind of revert back into these very hierarchical <laughs> models and not everyone is like that. I'm just saying that within the theatre context I was operating in, it was really interesting and challenging for me to go, you can't break that. That is like, <laughs> you know, and it was on some levels at times quite heartbreaking to watch people be given all this agency in that in those moments and then have to convert back into being a cog in a wheel um, but I really felt like at the time like and I still feel like this there was a period of time where we should have been doing everything differently because everything was different um, and I really appreciated what you were saying before about like how do we invest in the experiment of new ways of working, not just new ways of making, not just, mm. but the whole structure and system. Um, and yeah, I didn't change the what, but we've got a really great artistic director that's just joined the theatre company and we know that we've tried something different and I knew when to step out and it was time for someone else to step in. And you have to kind of stretch a little bit in different ways and something will have stuck. Um, and, you know, ultimately that artistic director has stepped in and there's 18 works in development for them to look through. And some, yeah, too many, but, <laughs> but you know, there's, there was so much fucking making. Like we closed the doors to our audiences, but the doors actually were busted open for art making. 
And I think that company, there will be a legacy piece there that will change the imprint of it in some way. And it became a heart for the sector for a period of time. And it changed the power paradigm between what does a major theatre company and a small to medium <laughs> micro company look like in a city. Um, yeah. It was really inspiring from over here as well to just kind of, you know, to see someone take to, to the lead and go, actually, what if it looks like this? Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yes, this is very exciting for me because I'm uh, doing my PhD on collectivity and institutions, on anti institutions. So please forgive me if I like, get excited and maybe <laughs> talk little moment here, but I'm really excited about the, or I'd like to propose that potentially in history, like we're in a moment in history where, um, and it's happened, it's recurred in history before, but I feel like there's a broadening of this moment in history where people are starting to occupy the institutions that are meant to represent them. And I feel like uh, to even to do it temporarily, like for yeah. a period of time, is, is worth every second of it. Yeah. And sometimes those structures are reformed. Sometimes we need the structures to come back and then to break down again. But um, I think, like here, there are some venues that have lost touch with us as a community, are no longer accessible, are very, very remote, hard to, um, and we need to take that back. And it's not a question of funding, it's a question of assertion. Yes. Um, and I think one of the most brilliant things that came out of COVID locally was the Perth Festival programmed work and I don't think personally I ever want to see it go back to being buying a shitload of work and flying it in at the expense of local work because yeah. you know I feel like that was a change that did not need a pandemic to happen but pandemic helped it happen mm -hmm. um, and it's really exciting but uh, I suppose yeah that I would contend that though it has never maybe lasted historically doesn't mean it can't last now, or in the short future, near future. Mm. The, oh. No, you can talk. Oh, there's something about these <coughs> systems, like because I'm I've never been involved in an organisational level, just as, as an artist. But even even then, there is something about the efficiency of these like organisations that are machines at churning out a specific kind of product. I will. I remember this whole period of my life where I was focused on like getting to that point, like I want to direct for the state theatre company and when I get there, it's going to be different. And then I got there and it was exactly the same because the, the machinery is so tuned and kind of like it's just one of the continuing maybe regrets of my career that I, I didn't try to radically do something and I just did the thing and put out a show. I often think back on that and 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 wonder about like actually what is the what is the scope of possibility as not an organizational thing, just even as an artist thing to you get the opportunity, you have X weeks in the space with these people. What can we like actually do that will satisfy the requirements or should we just abandon the feeling like we have to provide a requirement. Yeah, I, I think about that a lot because I that, that first time really stuck with me as just like this utter failure on my part to 
do any of the stuff that I always talk about because I'm a hypocrite. No, <laughs> <laughs> you're not a hypocrite. Uh, Just off that, that's not what I was going to say at the time, right. but off that. I think it's come up a few times in the last couple of weeks about this kind of false pathway that exists in the arts and um, you know you're not a small to medium or an independent because you want to get into the main right um, you're an independent because you don't want to be there <laughs> um, but you don't have to change the system as well each time but what keeps coming to mind too is um, um, this company who are now a company in Sydney called regroup and I first came across them when they were all grads recently out of Wollongong Uni and they were pretty just like, oh, fuck the system. We don't want to start applying for grants. And I'm not advocating for artists working for no money here, but they didn't want to get into the system too quickly. And so, and they didn't care about audiences or anything like that. And so they would, they'd put on shows in their houses and in their garages for each other. They'd, um, this is being recorded. Shit, doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> they'd like break into carriage works and take <laughs> rehearsal space um, when they didn't have it. <laughs> there was that real anarchy to the making because they weren't in the system and they weren't um, expending energy on funding applications or, you know, anyway. So fast forward a few years, they're making shit hot work and they've just been programmed at the Opera House and, you know, now they're all in there. But they went about it not trying to get there like it was in this real so, radical rebellion kind of anarchic yeah. beautiful way and their work is amazing and really really interesting but yeah they just had this great energy of just like because and that's that's a vital part of this because <laughs> in sydney the system is so hard to penetrate yeah. there's no space to make work no one's getting the pool is so large no one's getting money so they've kind of given up on it and because of that give up it is creating this really oh, radical so. belly underneath it and and i think when i was living in sydney what really came up to me about wa was that it is an incredibly supportive place yeah. to make work and that there's almost an expectation that you will make work and that it will be programs you know, or that you will get funding um, from emerging through. I mean, it's not easy. It's really fucking hard, but um, that, that it's a much more expected, accessible thing in Perth than it is in Sydney. And in Sydney, the, the response to that is creating a pretty interesting underbelly of theatre and music and, yeah. Yeah, the Sydney underbelly is really amazing and a lot of the the best venues to play in Sydney and the experimental music scene are house concerts. Yeah. And one of the best ones, one of the best ones is in a, um, a room with a really high ceiling. And um, the guy who runs it just has a lot of like philanthropist friends, I guess. <laughs> so they're house concerts. And I've been to one of these concerts and there's 200 people in the audience and they're free, but you can donate if you want. And most of the artists get 500 bucks each for playing one of these gigs. I think that's and how Regroup did it at the beginning yeah. too. You'd rock up to the lounge room and pay what you want. Yeah. They did yeah. it pretty well. <laughs> um, I just wanted to quickly say, uh, you said don't want to advocate for, uh, this is just a slide in and then we can move on, but um, don't want to advocate for artists working for free. Um, I'm an anti-capitalist and I, I think that um, one of the powers that art has and our, like, our community has as well is to like um, create 
I don't really know what the language to speak about this is, but um, we can create stuff that's valuable in, in other ways and that has, um, a, like I'm talking about in this community sense, like a giving nature to it as well, something that is healing to participate in and not, and not draining. And I don't think we should forget that. Um, yeah. we, we should think very carefully about when we work for free and when we, when we don't. But we shouldn't forget that working for free can be like an extremely James Berlin thing. has yeah. always had beautiful <laughs> for, models. For us. Yeah. Right. Us. And he's always for years and years and years, I think ever since I've met met him, he's always talked about doing one project a year for like his heart project, which he doesn't apply for funding for or anything like that, but he and he does it for free to kind of sustain him. Mm. And it's the one that is kind of a bit of a well, Fuck it all. Like, I don't care. <laughs> I hate it. But they're the ones that have also stuck mm. for him. Mm. But yeah, great. Oh, oh. I'm just so happy. We call them soul gigs. Soul gigs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, eh, I guess looking at what the Vanguard is or what it should be or what it was, it's really hard to work within. Um, institutions are a system based on capitalism and patriarchy because um, how can I put this like some of the best things are going to be not seen by people or seen by five people and does that matter like do we need to work towards having this goal to be on a certain stage and have a certain amount of people watch it or is it just is that good enough? Do you know what I mean? Like, is it okay to have the house concerts and to have that um, that time and that memory and that experience? Once we start putting those kinds of works, by the time they hit maybe where you might want them to go, have you lost that kind of essence? Or I'm not explaining myself very well mm, and I apologise. No, no. Um, it's not Vanguard anymore. Mm. Like, yeah, yeah. I feel like my brain's an Ouroboros at the moment. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. It feels um, a bit like it's that redefining success. Um, absolutely. As well, you know, yeah. is it, is that just, is it personal? You know? Yeah. You're like for each of us to redefine our own idea of success. Yeah. And the idea, and just, grant writing, like the questions that are put there, um, even if you do want to um, keep a, a, like a regular job or um, a money-making job and then have your practice on the side because you really love it and you enjoy it and you want to experiment, um, the constantly doing any kind of grant writing and answering those questions just kind of beats a different <laughs> drum in your head mm, mm. you know like i have to answer this oh is that in i'm itself not is i'm not this to prove yourself like or val put value on yourself yeah exactly like in very strict terms and mm. even if you start one way eventually <laughs> like you start considering yourself and your practice <laughs> in a different model mm. it's kind of Insidious. It is terrifying <laughs> yeah. well i was wondering just talking about the the idea of you know, the parochial nature of, of Perth and our community. I, I just wonder perhaps if, if, if there were more opportunities for 
people within the local industry to take on those leadership roles and positions of power, whether that would contribute to an essence of sustainability. Because I do feel, for, you know, from my perspective in, in the local industry, that we are quite often, like maybe every five years or so, having to press a reset button where we, we're like, okay, we're back here again because somebody's new taking the role. They don't have any sense of intimacy or understanding of the local industry. So we're going to have to um, begin back at step one to <coughs> try and prove ourselves that kind of parochial nature of it um, and, and to try and <laughs> make this person believe that we are worth it and we're worth investing in. And I just don't see many examples of boards or whatever putting local people um, into those positions who already really intimately know the community and 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 how and and you were saying the other day, Rach, when that when you yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I, I'm saying I, I, yeah, definitely that and James Berlin as well and and Rachel was saying in her um, one of the workshops the other day that you know when you read about um, Iggy taking over and that he was really intent on on giving opportunities to local artists you know, because he's from here and he knew that the talent pool was here, that that was something that kind of set you in motion to create your work. And I just think it's, it feeds in into itself because if somebody new from over east is starting at the top, God, it's going to take two, three years for them to get to know the kind of community, let alone, and then, you know, to start looking at the experimental and the underground scene, that's like a whole nother five years. And we just never get to that point here. It feels like yeah. we never get there. So the penetration and that kind of seeping in is, it isn't really holistic in a way. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. But they're from over east, so they're better. <laughs> but I think, and that's that kind of that is the mindset that that puts on us as as an industry. I think, yeah. and you do go, oh gosh, you know, like, is it? And 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 then you know, and and often what happens when people from over east come the first two years, they do cast the you know people because they don't really have faith in the industry, you know, and then they get to know the industry and then they realise the industry is great, and you know, then they do start investing but then they go again. so it's <laughs> yeah. like you know it's just this kind of circular situation where I just kind of go gosh wouldn't it be great if we had you know Mel knows this you know like there's people here who can do the job but for some reason maybe the boards or whatever the government don't have that faith in Perth artists to give them that power and then it's just this kind well, of... Well, they're afraid of them and they don't want the system to change. Well, maybe. Maybe, yeah. I don't know. So I, that was a, that was a question I had. How many artists uh, sit on boards? Um, well, that's the other thing. It feels like we don't really have access to understanding the process of a board. You know, like I hear sometimes second-hand, third-hand information about what happens inside a board meeting, but I wouldn't have a clue. Like, I would love as an artist to sit in on a board meeting um, and get that kind of... And, and equally, I would love for board members... <laughs> I would love for board members to be able to come into a rehearsal room and actually see a creative process oh as it happens. Oh, In my old job, which wasn't really creative... Uh, I was a creative in in that system. We call we had a thing called Get Connected, where 
we would go in and sit in the office and see how the administrative team works and and similarly they would come into the room and see how we operate and it did actually create a sense of connectedness and I just feel like that access those access points aren't really here at the moment so I mean I would love personally to be able to understand it but I don't know certainly a lot of articles that came out last year based on some of the things that have happened decisions knee-jerk reactions from boards um, have shown because the articles profiled the board members that there were no artists on the boards at that time. Yeah. So, and that's a big problem. So how many people in this yeah. room have sat on a board? How many people quit? <laughs> but there's a massive disconnect. I know Libby's going to jump in in a minute and I don't want to take up too much of her time. But there's a massive disconnect between management and uh, mm. creative mm. roles. It does feel with, like Even that. within an institution. Mm. So, like, and multiple institutions. So just as an aside, I was sitting on a, I was doing a Black Swan show last year and, um, um, Someone came in. They said, "Oh, do you mind if this person sits sits in on this?" Um, we were doing a production week. It was like we were three days off opening, and um, I went, "Oh yeah, that's fine, it's fine." And I turned around. I had a chat to her, and I was like, "Oh, so um, so what are you doing?" She's like, "Oh, I'm doing my final year comment in arts management." I was like, "Oh, it's, I think it's like three years or something," and she'd been and um, she said, "Oh, I've I've never been in here before." I was like, what do you mean? Um, she said, oh, I've, I've never been into a rehearsal room. I've, ne I've never sat on a production week. She was like, oh, so do you guys get paid extra for, um, for like, being here this late? I'm like, oh, my. <laughs> and I sort of told her and her head kind of exploded. Yeah. And I said, oh, so have you just started your succumbent at Black Swan? And she'd been there for six months. Yeah. This is the like, this is It the was problem. just kind of like, just, holy shit, there's like – you know, and, and arts management at WAP has been seen as like quite a, like it's a well-regarded management course, but I just like, how is that? I had no idea that they had no idea. They'd never been into a, a really standard <laughs> institutionalised rehearsal, rehearsal room like Black Swan. They hadn't even gone there, mm. like, to see how we work or we produce something. Mm. So that was just Incredible. kind of And when yeah. there is such a chasm, you know, like how can we begin to create community and uh, equity and I don't know all of the things that we've been talking mm. about in this in this oh. amazing few weeks mm. I um oh, swore I wouldn't join this table today <laughs> I was gonna make space for everyone but here I am sorry um and I also want to be uh very clear that I'm speaking on my own behalf when I make these comments and no boards that I do sit on um because I am often the artist that sits on boards, and I sit on two boards in this in this state. Um, so uh, these opinions are my own. Um, it's cooked. You're completely right. You're completely right. I find um, it's it's really hard that um, there was such a trend about ten years ago um, to bring on corporates onto boards um, because they were going to bring the money in and they were going to fix it all. And, um, and so they joined, I'm speaking incredibly broadly here, um, uh, and so the, 
corporates came onto boards, well-meaning, often, you know, had been to the opera and loved it. Um, and so they were arts, you know, supporters, good on them. Um, learned the clarinet at high school, good on you. And um, so did I. And, uh, and, uh, and came in without any real understanding, actually, of what goes on in process, in rehearsal rooms, um, in production, what it takes, what a creative process is. Um, and it's a real problem because they're there to advise risk management and governance ideas um, about a system and about a process that they have no lived experience of and no real understanding of and are sometimes, frankly, quite dismissive of. Um, and so as part of that, I guess I would say I encourage artists to join boards. It's not as scary as it looks. Um, you, you are going to have to look at a bunch of budget papers. Yep, you are. Um, uh, but, you know, like, that's not so bad. Like, you should be able to read budget papers, to be honest. And I... I don't buy into this, like, artists are no good with money, oh, budgets. And I'm like, I've never met an artist that couldn't tell me how many beers they could have while still being able to pay the rent. Like, I just, I call bullshit on that. And uh, I think that we need to back ourselves as artists about having faith in best practice and how we want it to be and how we want the future to roll out. And part of that is accepting that maybe we don't know everything about governance either. And I think it's a two-way street. I, I remember on one board that I sit on <laughs> during COVID, I recommended that as part of the PD about governance training, that it was a swap program that we ran. And I'm like, yeah, like, you know, let's, uh, let's run a system where the boards are allowed in the rehearsal room for a day. Like that they that give up a day happen. of their that office work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and vice versa. And it was not a popular suggestion. Um, it did not happen, <laughs> but I think it's, I think there is a, a dual responsibility that yes, boards, regardless of their background, absolutely have to become more informed about what the process is and understand that there is a multitude of process, that it's not always just, uh, you know, two Debbies followed by a three week rehearsal period followed by, you know, like that that's different. But I also think that there is a responsibility for artists to recognise that we don't necessarily know about governance mm -hmm. and maybe we should learn about those systems because you kind of got to know it to take it down and rebuild it. But what got about to, just sitting in? Like, is it, yeah, it's, it's this whole idea of secrecy, like, yeah. I don't, people are scared of joining what they have completely no idea about. But I think if, if people were able to sit in or invited to sit at a meeting that yep. realise I can either do this or I can't do this. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, I, think so. yeah. I mean, it's not a surprise to anyone in this room to learn that I'm all about like cards on the table, share everything. You know, that's that's the, the you know, that's how you learn and it's how you it's how you remain accountable, which I think is a, a really important thing. But, you know, like the first step is like the AGMs. Are they boring? Yeah. But is it your first portal into like looking into what is going on and listening to those annual reports? Like have a look at those figures and ask the questions, you know. Like having run those AGMs, I love a question from the floor. I would love an artist to be like, God, that seems like a lot of money to sink into that program. What was going on there? I would like I would welcome that. And I think that that's a responsibility that artists have as well to interrogate those systems and put themselves in a place of maybe discomfort so that you can begin to learn it, which is not in any way to take away the obligation of board members and people in positions of power and admin. They should that goes the same way. They should be putting themselves in a place of some discomfort in getting to understand what it's like from the other side. Yeah, and then just maybe, but, but and also though in the appointing of, you know, 
ADs or mm. institution, you know, in institutions, being able to recognise the importance and the validity of perhaps, you know, providing opportunities for mm. local um, artists who, you know, to step into those roles of couldn't seniority. Agree. Couldn't agree more. Because I think if we can't invest in our own community, nobody else is going to here. You know, like nobody from, oh, I haven't seen it yet, I'm not going to say never, but like, uh, you know, somebody from Perth isn't going to get a job as an AD for a company in Sydney. Like that's just not going to happen anytime well, soon, you know, I don't know. Matt's at Malthouse, but that's a rare, it's a rare exception. Dank, yeah, and Dank, yeah. Oh, Dank, sure, sure. I don't know. I just think like we, we the, just read the ratio is not kind. Is ratio is not yeah. great. Yeah, let's call the ones we have. Yeah, no, they're definitely, definitely. Yeah. They also, Hi, Jess. In, even there, they have a trend to get in international people and people that yeah. are a part of the community. Like yeah. I was living and working in Melbourne, and the director of Chunky Move changed, and they brought in someone. And this was like in an ecosystem that was really supportive, and you know everyone was together and everyone shared in each other's works. And then they brought in someone international and just broke it all apart. But in that moment, actually, what it did was it made space in the community as well. Mm. So there's a value in both sides, but I think we undervalue the local. Mm. I think it's like just bringing a bit more balance into yeah. it, I mm. think. I agree, yeah. Question that I think we all need to ask ourselves is how invested are we, are we in our building our own communities or are we just wanting to really enjoy being an artist? And they're not necessarily in conflict, but mm. they can be. Especially if we just wanted to have a big gigs and bask in our own glory. <laughs> I might take Sam's point actually and leverage it for my own um, for my own thoughts. I, like I've, I've heard a lot at this table about us, about the artists and the institutions and the funding bodies and all those kinds of things and the difference between us and other cities. But when I think about vanguards and about the art that's being made here, I studied arts management and I did spend some time in a rehearsal room and I did my six months to comment at Tour and New Music. You know, and saw a lot of gigs with not a lot of people in the room. And I want to kind of question the role of the audience in this um, and to think about, you know, there's a lot um, there's a lot to be said about some of the East End centres and about the audience that's been established over time, both due to population density and also due to general enthusiasm in seeing work and experiencing work that sits outside of the mainstream. And I want to ask um, this table or anyone else about what is the role of the vanguard, that, what is the role in the artist vanguard in building an audience for that work? Because I think that's what funders are looking for. It's what presentation platforms and festivals are looking for, is how can, how can limited resources be used to gain maximum reach? Um, and that's not to say that I agree with that, but, um, but, but I, certainly can, I certainly think from a presenter point of view, experimental work presents a challenge um, because you're looked at as seeing um, that you can invest this resources in an outcome for this many people or for this many people. Um, and yeah, I kind of want to ask some experimental makers, what do you think about building an audience and how important is that to you when you're thinking about your work? I think it's a hard and interesting question because as a person that loved a lot of really weird shit growing up that really influenced me, you kind of grow up reading about these people and a lot of the time all the weird people just sort of made stuff for themselves and then got incredibly popular and then so you, for me at least, I certainly built up this idea in my head, not that they would come, but that the only uh, way that I could do it in a way that felt right to me 
was to um, do stuff from that internal impulse as opposed to necessarily um, considering an audience all that mm. much. And I think then in my time inside of this space where considering the audience is uh, a question normally is question two mm. uh, in your application, it's, it's kind of create, yeah, I, I think there is a tension here and it is kind of like uh, one that I wrestle with a lot. I don't know the answer, but I also don't, uh, I, I think also there's a thing where it's just like, it's a very decent possibility that actually I'm a bad artist and that other people working from themselves are good enough to have an audience, right? But are you a bad artist or are you a bad artist in a Perth context? Do you know what I mean? Uh, because if you were making I mean, if you were talking about <laughs> like you're a bad artist <laughs> in a Perth context, but if you know, it's me, then I'm a bad artist. But if you were making the work that you wanted to make in a context where people go out on a Wednesday night and take a punt on something mm. that is going to be fucking weird, yeah. like, would there be more opportunities? Would there be, you know... Um, would that look different? Maybe my argument runs something like, if, and I, I should take myself out of this because I, I can't be objective, but maybe my argument runs something like, I wonder if the stuff that, and, and yeah, I get the many arguments against this, but also, yeah, I wonder if the stuff that is kind of strange and at first glance, can't bring an audience. I do sometimes wonder if they had the support around it, whether they would find the audience in all the weird people in the world or yeah. all the weird people in the space. Because I think sometimes I see something and I go, say, and this is quite gross, but say it's 60% weird as opposed to 100%. <laughs> so I'm not into 60% weird, I'm into 100% weird, so I won't see the 60% mm. thing, but there's a mm. possibility that the artist was 100% weird and trying to sell their 60% weird work <laughs> so that the audience would come see it. And then they maybe they would have more people now, but they lose that kind of like rabid, I'm mm. here every single time because you speak to my soul yeah. kind of fan base. That I think... I'm chasing, I think we all kind of in some mm. way. Like stalkers. Yeah. <laughs> Art stalkers. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I guess I feel like I see quite a lot of experimental work and it's something that I feel passionately about, but I see the same people in every audience. Yeah. Mm. And I see a lot of people who participate in the sector in the audience. Is that a problem, though? No, I don't think it's a problem. I think that that's going to limit the growth. I think it's going to limit growth potential and it's going to be growing too. So, I mean, like, I'm curious, like, about yeah. the Sydney company of, like, were they happier when they were sharing in that, you know, in that in in the suburbs or in the households, right? As opposed I mean, they're to very fresh. It's like yeah, no, I know, but like if they start to now be kind of falling into these big institutions, yeah. where like you said before, where it's kind of like all of a sudden you fall back into your cogs, where you're like you're just the actor now, and you know, we'll look after business, we'll look after you know marketing, publicity, and all these sorts of things for you. Like, what are we? What are our intentions? What do we want? Is is, is bigger always? better and is more people always they, better they, like, they feel like it's happy accident and it will stop at any second like one of my favorite shows this year was bobby russell's uh blue room like by far i got so excited by that <laughs> and what i loved most about being in the audience that night was that we were probably about like 20 people in at the preview right and i felt comfortable to jeer and scream and like just join in the celebration because I was in a sort of community, right? And I wasn't in this 
separate space to you. So I, I um, I'm, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I was happy that that was a, an intimate space surrounded by people that I felt comfortable to be around and to be welcome to be myself in and to kind of embrace that queerness of myself that I don't always get to do. I think personally, like my, my favorite works that I've produced have been without an audience in mind. Mm. And some of them have been lucky enough to end up with an audience, you know, like um, Hymns for End Times was mm. not written, like very specifically not written with anyone else in mind. And sometimes I feel like I have to be like, push things just for the sake of pushing things. But I actually just wanted to write something completely that I loved as a work. And um, I've found that looking over my career that they have been the works that have ended up speaking to people either on a small or a larger scale, mm. depending on you know, luck or support or zeitgeist or a whole bunch of different things. Um, so having an audience in mind when you're creating, <coughs> I think is detrimental for me. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So. But I think it's something that the platform or the festival or, you know, I guess I'm coming at it not from the artist's point of view, but from the presenter's point of view that part of my job is I have to think about the audience, oh. you know, and that work that you created for yourself in like in a, in a pandemic um, was seen by almost 2000 people, which is extraordinary, you know, and I think, I think when I when going back to the start of this session of who are we and what is Vanguard, like oh. are our audiences here Vanguards? And is there an appetite or is it part of our role and our challenge to build this appetite oh. for the same level of creative experimentation and risk taking in our audience as it is in our in our makers yeah because i because because i feel that it is yeah i think that question of building the appetite is something that i've been really curious about for the longest time as in as opposed to programming or thinking about the things with audiences already built in as the like what is what is the mechanism of making a community of audiences more interested in stranger things? Just heads up, we're kind of on time, so I just wanted to kind of invite Rebecca and Crystal to to say what they were had on their mind before we wrap up. Ah, uh, I mean, there's so much to digest and so much more to talk about, but I guess I'm here because um, something came up for me, backtracking the conversation a little bit when it comes to supporting. Uh, the vanguard or the people who are making new and exciting or interesting or cross-form work um, who haven't got a name to themselves yet. And I guess I'm coming with the hat on of being incredibly uh, supportive of young people in the industry and in the local community. And I just wanted to bring up a check with my boss that this was okay. But essentially, I work at Propel UFATS WA in a program that we have run that was part of the founding of Propel. It's called Drug Aware Y Culture Metro, which was the only targeted funding initiative for um, young people, for those 26 and under, to create new work with very, very limited criteria, really, just that you're like having a mentor, that you're going to integrate sponsorship into it, um, that it will be for other people. Um, and a number of a number of artists in the sector in, in WA have um, that's been part of their first or part of their initial kind of ground roots of gaining financial support for a project for many years now, and the program is closing, so we've lost funding, and it's not just 
metro, it's regional as well. And I, and the biggest thing that like really hit home for me out of all of it and all the different things I was thinking about supporting the next generation of makers is these are makers who want to be verified for what they make, but also want to be paid or at least some receive some kind of reimbursement that's beyond making work for free or making work from scraps while there is very much a way of making work and a lot of room for it so I guess I just wanted to pose the provocation of then where whilst we are also fighting at Prevail very much for what is the next thing that comes out of the space that is now hard and fast lost but where in WA now can the next generation of makers who are making cross-form work, many who have been experimental musicians as well and dancers who have received funding from Y Culture Metro for the past few years, where are they going to gain their support from? And especially in the context of the barriers that do exist when it comes to applying for under 15K and other kinds of funding applications. So that's all I wanted to propose, really. And keep us informed, hey, about yeah. anything, any plans, any kind of how people can help. Crystal? Um, yeah, really quick, I think that's a perfect segue. Thank you, Beck. I think it's about, I think my provocation is about belonging and having faith in your audience and quantity, uh, quality over quantity. And I think that maybe it's about going out and finding your little community and finding that sense of belonging when you sit in the a show, a work, like walk and feeling like, okay, I actually feel like I can be myself, I can be celebrated and I can celebrate others. And the work that I've been fortunate enough to do with Sensorium is actually going out and seeking that new audience of neurodivergent kids, kids with high access needs, because that is the seed for actually them seeing that they can be artists and also that they can have a space for themselves so it doesn't have to be these silos or top down we make this with the same kind of audience all the time it's about seeking new audience and believing that yeah they'll get it not being like oh we're trying to make it palatable and 60 yeah. percent weird yeah 60 percent make it hundred but then bring it to the right one person or two kids in the room that will go ecstatic and that will change, not oh, I'm not trying to be like, oh, change their life, but it will change the way they see the world and like the whole like see it to be a thing. And I think it's also also about redefining success, which I think everyone on this table have continued to do, which is, um, yeah, what does success look like to you as an artist, as a maker, as a part of a team? Um, like to me, I think it's about helping others find that belonging and sitting in a space and going, oh, this is great. And this is a moment that I, yeah, I can I can sit in, and yeah, I can I can find my community right here. So that's just my obligation for the future generation. Yeah. In a wrap up, Jess. Oh no, it was just interesting hearing Jess's offer and then the conversation that's happened afterwards, and wearing my old hat, which now is worn <laughs> much more stylishly and beautifully by Zohar when I was nice. at the Australia Council. Um, it's interesting, like when you'd see the applications come through. Um, and this isn't a funding issue at all, but it's about how artists and makers and companies were framing their work. Um, mm -hmm. You know, Soha does looked after two portfolios, as in community arts and experimental arts. And and I don't even know if the structure of the grants program is still the same as, as when I was there, but you'd see this huge rush of particularly independent artists and companies in experimental arts going to the creation criteria. 
there's a series of election uh, uh, electable criterion that you can address. But I found so much of the interesting applications that were coming through addressed audiences because they were really considering how they were making their work and how that work would be experienced and enjoyed. Mm. And, and it's likewise in community arts. Everyone just goes towards access and participation because of the nature of the work. But then in, similarly, how that work would ex be experienced by audiences, but then how you apply a creation lens mm -hmm. in that area of practice too. And so it's about, you know, those artists that sort of took the work that they were doing and thought of it completely differently um, really made for some very interesting um, words on a page and then ultimately extraordinary projects, I feel. Yeah. yeah. Gorge. Well, I think we need to wrap it up, gang. Thanks, everybody. What a great table. Thanks to everyone who came and sat at it and listened and joined. Thank you.